We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. I am Megan Weiskup with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. I don't know about y'all, but late January through March tends to be that time where I just don't know what to do. I've exhausted my indoor quilting. I'm so ready to get outside. I, everything's white and I just, my brain just kind of goes to mush, it feels. This episode, we're going to be talking about a seasonal outdoor activity uh, that fits perfect with the coming weeks. Not only does it allow you to get some exercise, it allows you to experience the woods in a, in a different season so you can really learn behaviors and habitats of different animals. So today we're going to be talking about shed hunting. This search for, for sheds um, opens up new aspects of the whitetail life cycle so you can really become a little bit more familiar with their habitat for non-hunters. It's a beautiful way to get outside and, and explore new areas. Our guest today is an experienced shed hunter and she's gonna talk about her experience and one of our favorite topics, she's gonna talk about our, her dogs also. So I'm excited to hear more and really hear more about her wealth of knowledge on this topic. I am very excited to welcome back Marissa Jensen to the show. And I say welcome back because she joined us for one of our first episodes in season one of She Goes Outdoors. There we learned a little bit more about her. So I definitely encourage you to listen to that um, episode of our podcast. So um, we're excited to welcome back Marissa Jensen. So she spends much of her time as the education outreach program manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. But prior to joining the conservation community, Marissa worked as a licensed vet tech for 10 years. Um, with her bachelor's of science, she then joined Nebraska Game and Parks Commission as a conservation tech and then moved over to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever in her current role. Throughout her life, Marissa has been an avid outdoors woman and a dog trainer. In her spare time, she enjoys fishing, exploring the uplands and the woods with her son and bird dogs, and helping others find their passion for the outdoors. As an added bonus, she looks for sheds during the off season and has helped provide excitement and joy for the whole family. So today, we're going to talk about shed hunting. Perfect. Thank you, Rachel, for a great introduction for Marissa and, and definitely want to get the questions going because uh, shed hunting is definitely a great way to, to get over the, the wintertime blues and to get back out there. And, and also for folks that are, which we know a lot of our listeners are, that are just getting into hunting, um, shed hunting provides a, a great opportunity to begin looking for, for places where you may want to place that tree stand or place that blind next year as you start to learn some of their behaviors and routes and some of the signs that those antlers provide you about the deer's uh, daily movement and and, um, and routine. So let's, you know, kind of go back to the beginning. We know you, you got kind of the, that vet tech degree and, and experience. So 
um, definitely bring it down to to our level, uh, my level for sure, when we kind of get into that biology. So, you know, a lot of folks may not even realize that, you know, that that antler is alive. You know, a lot of us just think, you know, it's just there on the head, you know, but it, it's actually a living um, part of the deer and it, it, it goes through its own life cycle each year, which is pretty fascinating and cool. And, and a lot of folks might not know, you know, in general, what that, that life cycle looks like. And, you know, a little bit, maybe why the, the antler is, is different than a horn. And then if you could kind of go into some of the details about, you know, what the purpose is of the antlers, you know, what, what do those deer use those for? And, you know, what's going on in those bucks that, that kind of triggers that, that whole entire life cycle and, and the use of them. Yeah. Thank you, Megan and, and Rachel as well. I'm excited to be here and talk with you all, you know, the, the sheds, the antlers on deer are just fascinating and they're all very unique, you know, between the white-tailed deer and the mule deer. And then you get into the other cervids um, of the deer family with the moose and the elk. Um, and it's just really fascinating to see how they grow differently um, in size and shape. And so every year after the rut, um, which is the mating season with, with the deer, the males will start decreasing in a, a certain hormone, which is called testosterone. Testosterone, excuse me, I can't say that apparently. <laughs> um, and so once that um, hormone starts to drop, they will actually lose their antlers. And they'll do that every year. And typically, especially in the Midwest, we can start seeing that as early as late December through March, sometimes even April. But a lot of times you'll really notice that um, in between February and March. And then what will happen is um, they will regrow those antlers every year. And as Megan mentioned, they are living, you know, they, they have feeling, they have a blood supply that goes to them. Um, they grow velvet on them and they'll scrape that velvet off. So it's really fascinating just to see the progression of those antlers and how they grow individual deer every year. They're very different with from a horn. If you think about your nails and the material that your fingernails are made out of, horns are very similar to your fingernails. And so there's not necessarily any feeling there, but antlers are very different in the sense that, as Megan mentioned, you know, that blood supply and that sensation that they have in them, it's really fascinating. They use those antlers um, for a few different reasons. Um, one is to attract the female deer, um, right? So, you know, similar to other species where, you know, peacocks and other animals that, um, you know, have displays to attract the female, male deers will do that with their antlers. And then they will also use that to show dominance to other males. Have you ever seen the deers kind of clash their antlers together in displays of dominance and to kind of defend their territory and their females? So it's, it's a very fascinating anatomical feature that they have. You know, it's just such a, a cool, like you said, and fascinating process with it being, you know, a living thing that goes on. Um, and you mentioned uh, about the the feelings that they they have in those horns. You know, is it painful for the deer when they when they drop those, you know, just out of curiosity? Yeah. So the, when they drop them, you will sometimes see if you find a really, really fresh shed, you can actually see a little bit of the tissue and the blood on that area. But I don't believe that it is painful. You know, at least all of the, the research that I've read um, doesn't indicate that. But uh, it is, I mean, it is extremely fascinating if you find a, a fresh one, because you can see how that's a very, it's a living thing. To me, I, I kind of liken it to a cutting my fingernails. That's how I have to associate it. Cause I, it, it's, 
almost too advanced for my little brain to understand how this thing grows and then falls off and doesn't hurt. It's, it's so cool. So I see people, they hunt sheds for different reasons. You see some folks will use it in decorations in their house. I've certainly seen some pretty amazing shed antler light fixtures and chandeliers. Some people will use them for dog chew toys. I've heard great things about that, but really why do you shed hunt? You know, what do you do with your sheds? Yeah. So it, it kind of started many years ago before I even was a hunter myself and pull back several, several years. And I used to train search and rescue dogs. And I, I love working with dogs. I love spending time outside. And I was looking for an activity similar to what you were mentioning earlier, Rachel, you know, how do I get outside in January and February and March when it's that transition of, oh, it's really cold. It's kind of wet and gross sometimes and muddy. And, and so it was an opportunity to get outside with my son. Um, We had a German shepherd at the time. And surprisingly, a lot of the training that goes into shed hunting for a dog is very similar to bird dog training, to search and rescue training. Um, we look at a lot of the same types of um, drives are what we call them. So the hunt drive and the prey drive in a dog. And so it was just an opportunity for me to kind of combine all of my passions, um, get us outside. And then as a bonus, we have a dog chew that if you go to a pet store, they're pretty darn expensive to purchase one of those. Now I, I will caveat that with check with your vet as far as giving your dog an antler to chew. There's a lot of back and forth about whether or not the best chew just because they can cause um, some issues with the teeth because they are so hard. They can fracture some of the teeth. I, uh, I personally like them and haven't had any issues, but it's always good to check with your vet. That's fascinating. And I've heard that back and forth about um, dog treats before, but that's really interesting to know. And I'm sure it also depends on the condition that you find the shed in as well. Um, potentially one that's been bleached out and sitting for a long time, maybe super hard compared to one that's a little fresher. Is that right, Marissa? Yeah, absolutely. You think about the difference between um, even bones, you know, cooked bones versus um, feeding a dog, you know, like a raw diet, Um, the harder that it gets that that bleached, you know, it sits out in the sun, the harder that's going to be for them to kind of chew on that. So I would, I would probably stay away from that, those really bright white bleached old antlers and maybe just use those to create a cool chandelier or something. That's awesome. I really like that idea. So Marissa, similar to other hunts, is there a time frame that's best to look for sheds? I mean, in my personal experience, I've always just stumbled across them when out walking and been like, oh, this is a wonderful bonus. But um, if I was actually to go out there with a purpose to look for sheds, what time of the year do you think is best? And, you know, we talk about like shed hunting. And when we think of hunting, we think, oh, we're going to wake up early or go out late in the evenings. Um, does the time of day matter for shed hunting? I mean, I know that seems silly, but are you more likely to find them at a certain time? Great questions. A lot of times February and March are going to be your best months in the Midwest, particularly um, to look for sheds, but you can see them earlier. Um, Again, it's going to depend on when that rut ends and when that testosterone level drops. I'm a big upland bird hunter and in Nebraska where I live, our season goes until January 31st. So what I'll do is when I'm out with my dogs, I'll start kind of looking where I'm walking. Um, You know, hopefully I'll kick up an antler, um, which sadly has never happened to me, happens to a lot of my friends, but I am not that lucky. (laughs) 
And I'll kind of start looking for different um, signs that there are deer in the area, bedding areas where the, you know, all the grass is really pushed down kind of in a circular area where you can tell that they're staying, you know, areas where the tree is rubbed, where they'll rub their antlers on to kind of try and help get that antler to fall off. Um, so those are things that I start looking for in January. And then I really hit the ground running, you know, February and March. And it works out perfect for me because upland season is over and I need something to keep my dogs and myself and especially my son active and outside. And it's a perfect way to just keep us engaged and, you know, kind of have the opportunity to do like a scavenger hunt is kind of how I feel it. And if you've got kids at home, that's, it's a great way to introduce, you know, a young one to the outdoors or to keep them going with you and, and to uh, fight against screens and video games and all those other things that are a challenge. And then the other kind of fun transition is that you can sometimes find them when you're starting to turkey hunt too, especially for those who are bow hunters and going out earlier in the um, season, my very first shed antler was actually found on a turkey hunt without my first shed antler, antler without the dogs. Um, I just kind of stumbled across it while I was looking around. And you can also look for morel mushrooms during that time. So just a, a great kind of transition between seasons and it gives you some time in between to keep active. As far as time of the day, um, as a, a general rule of thumb, I usually go later, late morning, early afternoon. And the reason that I do that isn't because it's necessarily a better time to shed hunt, but I like to give the deer an opportunity to get up and move out of an area. Um, one of the biggest things I think to take into consideration is that shed hunting should never be at the detriment of the animal. You know, they, they can be really stressed after the rut and the, you know, hard winters, lower, you know, food opportunities, things like that. And so we just always want to be aware that we're not stressing them out by pushing them out of their territory. And, um, you know, if their antlers starting to fall, stress them out to make it fall, anything like that. Um, those are things that you definitely don't want to do. So I'll give them an opportunity to kind of get up in the morning and move out of an area before I'll go in and start looking, especially because I have the dogs too. Wow. I love that you've taken the ethics into consideration there. That's really cool, Marissa. Funny that you, you brought up your story, Marissa, about your first shed, because my son's first shed that he discovered was also during his first turkey hunt. So yeah, that, that was a meaningful, like, hunt for a couple of reasons for him. You know, he found that first shed, just honestly, basically tripped over it. And I think he might remember that just as much as he does, you know, harvesting his first turkey, which was super cool. You don't have to be out there early in the morning because we do. We wanted to get them, those bucks up and going, let them be that day. But you're going to discover those where they do bed out because that's where they're hanging out. Um, they've settled in for the day and it's going to be that thick brush where they're bedding that you're, you're going to find them. And that's where our blind was close to an area where they probably had been bedding because the deer were roosting close to that area or <laughs> the turkeys had been roosting in that area during that time. <laughs> So, I was sold either way. I was like, deer yeah, roosting, right? we've got it. Deer roost, yeah, we got turkeys roosting and we got deer roosting and turkeys bedding, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I love the idea that you you take your son out with you. Um, it, it certainly is an outdoor activity, a hunt, we could say, for a larger group. It could be for your family, for kids of all ages. As we're recording right now, I am quarantined with my four kids. And so the, um, our episode has had, our recordings have had to change a little bit because of that. I am so glad to be listening to this because it is sparking my brain that I'm pretty sure we are going to spend this time uh, during our quarantine going outside and hunting for sheds. It may be a little bit early, but I don't care. We're going to go out on that scavenger hunt. And, you know, my kids, my, the age they are, even I think as adults, I honestly feel like they would rather find a shed and be more excited about that than finding a $10 bill on the ground, which is amazing. It just, it's, it's super cool. Their connection to nature and then they, they bring that shed and they put it in their room for decorations and they brag about it. Maybe Marissa, do you have a special story about you and you taking your son out and remind us how old your son is to give a perspective of age groups or age levels that could go out there. Yeah. So he's 11, which is right at that age where I'm not cool anymore. <laughs> so we have to come up with, you know, fun things to do outside so that he'll still want to hang out with me, you know, and one of the the newer things that we're getting into this year has been snowshoeing, um, which is really fun. And so, you know, there's, there's places like Fontenelle Forest, that's local, at least to me, you know, in our state parks, and where you can snowshoe and look for, for sheds, you know, as far as favorite experience that I would say that the, the turkey Shed was probably one of my favorites. What was so memorable about it is that it was my very first solo turkey as well. I was a very, very new hunter. I had harvested my first turkey the year before with uh, my cousin. And so it was really just within that, you know, first year of me becoming a hunter, went out, found the shed, harvested. I mean, similar to what you were saying with your son, you know, I don't know what was more memorable about that. And it was the, it was this chewed up, you know, some other animal had gotten to it. It was disgusting. I couldn't give it to my dogs because I didn't know what had been chewing on it. It wasn't one that I could hang up that looks pretty because most people probably wouldn't even have known it was a shed, <laughs> but it was still really memorable. And then definitely, I think that the shed hunting we did with our German shepherd, um, he's no longer with us. It was just a really incredible dog. And the time that we spent with him um, I think really helped transition me into wanting to train other dogs to do it. And so I always remember, you know, shed hunting with him. That's great. You know, not only can we take our family members, but this is a great, uh, I guess, an outdoor activity, an outdoor hunt, a sport that we can go with a group of friends, um, a social community. It's, it's a way of just introducing even nature and self as you're, you're out and about. And it could be a social distancing as we are right now. Spread yourself out in this grassy area that the that would be the habitat area of, that you could find those sheds and get out there. You can stay six feet apart, get out there and enjoy the opportunity. It's been a way to introduce so many to even the sport of hunting. 
wildlife out there that we could later on hunt that particular animal is in general. Now, we don't necessarily have to just take our two-legged friends out there. You have mentioned this a couple times now of taking your four-legged friends, your four-legged hunting partners out there. And I bet they could care less well about finding a $10 bill. They would be more excited to find antlers. Tell us about your four-legged friends uh, that you take out there hunting and get a little bit more in depth um, the, the excitement that they feed into when they find an antler. Yeah. So I have to say, you've given me an idea, though. I think I might train them to start looking for $10 bills because I think I would be more excited about that, Don, but I would be all for that. (laughs) Well, the $10 bill is probably dirtier than the shed, though. That's okay. I'm not complaining. Uh, No, it's a lot of fun. So right now I I have two German short hair pointers. You know, as I mentioned, I'm a big upland hunter. It's where I spend most of my time outside And so it's been a really fun transition with them to, you know, almost extend that season. And we do get questions sometimes, you know, is it going to interfere with your bird dog if you train them how to shed hunt? You know, is that going to make them not want to look for birds? And the answer is no. One of the things that I do that is, I think, really important is to identify different words with what you're doing. Um, so I tell my dogs when we go bird hunting, let's go find some birds. And it's just kind of the, you know, the comment I make right out of the, the gate, you know, when we're ready to go, let's go find birds. When I train them to shed hunt, everybody can use their own words. What I like to tell my dogs is find Bambi. That's been my, my cue from day one is to find Bambi. Now, you know, if they find a shed while we're bird hunting, that would be great. Again, never happened, but I would love it. But the, their, their drive for birds is going to way overcome any other thing that they pick up on in the field. It doesn't make them want to chase deer. That's another question that we get. Will they chase deer when I'm upland hunting? Um, no, if your dog has pretty high prey drive, they're going to chase deer anyways, whether you train them to shed hunt or not. So it's more of just trying to work with your individual dog about, you know, coming when they're called and, you know, training them not to chase different, different animals in the fields. But it's just been a great way for us to kind of continue our time together outside. It keeps them in shape, you know, when we're transitioning from different seasons and it's, you know, nice that it's in the spring before it gets too hot in the summer and you have to worry about them getting overheated. Yeah, I'll always have dogs, so we'll we'll always shed hunt. So the dogs, um, you definitely have me intrigued with the dogs, and and I thought that was pretty cool. Learned something new about you today, Marissa, too, with the the whole search and rescue thing. Like you, I've had some prior experience with being around um, different types of working dogs. So I was a reserve um, deputy and, and police officer for a couple different organizations for a couple of years. So really got an opportunity to to work with the canine officers that are, are there. It was totally cool to, to just watch the process um, looking, you know, and definitely get the opportunity. I got to work with a couple of different breeds over my time as well and actually have helped train a brand new um, canine that was coming um, onto the force. 
So, you know, whether it was narcotic search, um, cadaver searching, apprehension, um, and there's nothing more intimidating than putting on that, that big suit and taking off running in the dark and having that dog come up behind you and, and knock you flat and pin you down. So you can definitely feel that pressure. I mean, that's one thing that you, you may not realize. It's not so much always the, the shredding or the bite itself, but it's just that pure pressure that those jaws can, can put down. It, it's just amazing. And even with all that, that gear on, you still know that they, that they have you. But for me, it, there's just nothing more rewarding than watching a working dog or watching a dog work, you know, whether it is for hunting, whether it's for, you know, police work and, and even, you know, a lot of our conservation agencies around the United States have started um, employing canines and we had the opportunity to meet, you know, one of Kansas's uh, um, back on our on our pheasant webinar that we did for the, the She Goes Outdoor subscription box. So it's just, it's just so cool. And I think, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, how you've trained them a little bit and, and about the, the dogs that you currently have and, and, you know, that you had a German Shepherd before. And I can relate to that. I had a German Shepherd growing up and such a cool breed um, to work with. But could you expand a little bit more on, you know, you know, does any breed work? You know, I know that I've seen, you know, giant schnauzers, giant poodles, Australian Shepherds, just definitely those those, those herding dogs love to work and and um, I even worked with I had an Australian Shepherd and when I was on the reserve force and and started training him a little bit with you know, the cadaver stuff so you know had my wisdom teeth pulled so they told me to keep my wisdom teeth and I could use those you know to help start training him on on finding that scent and, and tracking so it, it's just a cool process so could you could you dive in a little bit deeper and you know talk a little bit about it um, it's definitely more than just playing fetch with them yeah great question and I'm so excited to hear all that well I have so many questions and conversations we'll have to have, <laughs> but it is any dog. They just need to have a couple of key traits, but it doesn't matter the breed if they have those traits, you know, certainly there's going to be some breeds that are bred more specifically to have these traits, these working traits. Um, and the, the traits that I'm talking about are hunt drive and prey drive. Um, so what those are is um, let's say that you take a, you know, a fishing pole with a, a wing on it, which some people like to do with bird dogs. And if the dog chases it, um, as you move it around, um, or if it chases a deer, or if it chases a cat, or, you know, that's prey drive, where it's chasing after something. And that's pretty common in a lot of, lot of breeds, just because of the fact that, you know, over the generations that we've domesticated the dog, it's not typically a, a prey species, right? It's a predator. It's got those big canines and it, eat, it eat, eats meat. And so that prey drive is pretty natural for them. The hunt drive is where it can get a little bit trickier sometimes. Um, and that's the ability for the dog to want to continue to search for something long after it can no longer see or smell it. So for instance, one thing that we really like to see in search and rescue dogs and that I like to see in my bird dogs and my shed dogs are if I'm playing fetch with them or if I'm playing with a toy and I set it up on the refrigerator and I leave, if I come back and that dog is still sitting there staring at the refrigerator, it's, it's focused in on that. Or if I throw a ball into the prairie and I make that dog sit there for a while, it doesn't just decide, no, oh, never mind, out of sight, out of mind, I'm bored, I'm going to move on to something else. It's going to spend 30 minutes or however long 
hopefully less than that if it's got a good nose, combing that prairie to look for that toy. So that's the ability for it to continue looking for it long after it's left all the other senses. You, sometimes you, you find dogs that are a little bit neurotic. It's They take that those drives a little bit too far. And that's where there's that fine line of what we call the off switch. Some working dogs don't have as good of an off switch because they've been bred for so long to work and work and work. And sometimes those are a little bit rougher to have in the house because they just want to continue to work at all times. So it, you know, when you're looking for a dog, you know, if you're going to a breeder and getting a purebred, that's one to really, you know, talk with that breeder and see what they breed the dog for, how they interact, the parents interact in the home. Um, rescues, you can test those traits at the shelter. Um, or through the rescue group, but sometimes it's hard to know if they're going to have that off switch. If they've been in a foster home, that, that's a good opportunity, but I've, I've had both. I really like my dogs to have an off switch. Sometimes it, it doesn't happen, <laughs> um, and then you just deal with it the best you can. <laughs> Marissa, that's fascinating. I really like the idea of being able to potentially utilize a rescue dog in that capacity. And we could probably do a whole episode and maybe we should on um, picking out a rescue dog specifically for working purposes and any tips you have for us. That'd be a great follow-up conversation to have. But um, so I'm curious, I'm obnoxiously competitive, both with myself and with anybody willing to engage me. And (laughs) so what I really like about shed hunting is that you can kind of set your own challenges. So if you just want to go out and enjoy the treasure hunt, that's wonderful. But if you have somebody that's maybe more advanced or you've been doing it and you want to challenge yourself, you can look for specific deer, right? Like if you have pictures of a deer on a trail camera, you can try to match up those antlers. Um, Is that something that you have any experience with or you know people that do pretty frequently? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's not something that I have any experience with um, primarily because, you know, I, I, spend a lot of time just in public land areas and haven't set up any trail cams um, in those areas. So I just don't know the resident deer population to that extent. Now, if you have private land or if you, you know, are setting up some trail cams in public areas, if that's allowed, um, that gives you a much more in-depth opportunity to get to know the deer. And I think that's really cool to be able to match up the antlers with a photo of the deer. I would love for that to happen. Um, it just haven't. So, you know, sometimes you can tell if you find an antler, you know, on a similar, on the same property, you can evaluate, you know, is this one that I got a year before, you know, has it changed? There's certain things with like the brow tines and parts of the antler where you can try and identify if it's from the same deer. Uh, so it, it is a, that's a great kind of next step if somebody's interested in that. Um, to make it a little bit more challenging for themselves. All right. So I also am super competitive. So if I want to beat Tana at shed hunting, never, where do I start I looking? To have a competition here. So when we are able to get, get together, I'm feeling we're going to have to meet somewhere, maybe one competition in each of our states and see how many shit. Yeah, I'm feeling it. It's coming. Oh, yeah. Julia, I'm on your team. <laughs> We've got the dogs. Answer. We're golden. <laughs> yeah, I call foul there. I don't know about that. Throwing a flag. Yeah. Yes. There's a definite flag there. But so for those of us that want to get into it and want to try and try and uh, out hunt somebody else, 
where do we even start looking for sheds? Um, you you kind of talked a little bit about it earlier, about where you look, um, but do you have any more tips or ideas or thoughts for those of us kind of getting into it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a bedding area, like I mentioned before, can be a good area when they're first rising in the morning or laying down that can kind of knock them loose. I like to look in creeks um, or any waterway where they might bend down to get a drink. And then like the kind of the trail areas where they, they walk, um, that's a really good place to look as well, especially if it's through some woods or you know, woody structure in a prairie where that antler can get snagged by a shrub or a branch or something. Um, and that's a good point as well is, you know, we often look strictly on the ground when we're looking for sheds, um, but don't forget to look in some of the branches and the shrubs. If it gets caught um, and doesn't drop to the ground, you can find them sometimes a little bit higher um, so those are some good areas, you know, check for rubs where they're going to be, you know, rubbing that antler against a tree. So if you see some of the tree kind of um, the bark kind of pulled apart, that's an indicator that they may have been there trying to get that antler to come off. But, you know, anywhere where it can kind of be disrupted with their movement. So those those travel corridors, bedding, water, food areas, those are really good places to to check. And I think, um, you know, I know we've had some tracking um, courses and, you know, there's typically, you know, in different states, there's um, educational opportunities like that. Look for deer tracks, you know, look on the ground and see if there's fresh tracks or fresh, you know, stool droppings, I guess you should say. <laughs> but, um, you know, you can look in those areas to see how long they've been there. Um, if they were there recently, then it's a good opportunity to, to scour the area a little bit more. To keep going, you you had mentioned you traditionally go to public ground. Um, does that include state parks? Yeah, you can go to state parks. Absolutely. There's, um, you know, a lot of times when I'm hunting, um, you know, in January and looking, I'm on our open fields and water site, which is our public walk-in access um, programs, you know, state parks, wildlife management areas, waterfowl production areas. Um, those are all great places to go. They all allow dogs. Now state parks start, might be a little bit differently where the dog needs to be on a leash. So, you know, definitely if you've got dogs, take that into consideration, know where you are, know what the um, rules and regulations are. It's always good when you have dogs to to follow the rules. Not everybody's a dog person. Not all dogs are dog people. So to make sure you're, you know, just being ethical in that sense as well. I know here in Iowa, you can also um, shed hunt on state parks, but I do want to make the the disclaimer that if you do find a pair of sheds that are still connected to a skull, that you do need approval. So you need to reach out to your local conservation officer and, and get the okay that you can have those sheds. So just want to put that out there. Um, I know that we get that question often and, and it's referred to as a salvage tag. So if you're reaching out to your local conservation officer, you wanna, you're asking for a salvage tag so that you can harvest those uh, sheds and, and the skulls. And That's a great point, Rachel. And you know, every state's a little bit different too. There are some states that have shed seasons um, because they don't want individuals interrupting the deer and stressing them out more or they may have special permits to collect sheds. So always, you know, double check with with your state agency to make sure you're you're following the the rules and regulations. I wanted to jump a little bit back to locations. 
Um, another idea to consider is farm ground. Uh, those fence lines, those grass lines that, or maybe perhaps some CRP ground that would be next to some farm ground. Reason I point this out is because recently one of just this past year, one of um, our close friends has a pretty good sized farming operation. And he sent a Snapchat of a very good size shed stuck in a very expensive tire. And so I would adventure to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting this out there that if you may have a very, really good luck contacting a local farmer and suggest that, hey, I would love to shed hunting in your, your ground and your crop area because I could save you hundreds of dollars in tire repair or replacement of tires. So put that out there, <laughs> just a suggestion for you. I'm glad you brought that up, Julia. I just, I completely, you know, forgot to mention the the fence rows and that's a great place to look. Again, they're going to be, you know, rubbing their head in that area. And when you've got, you know, agricultural land, they're going to go in there and whether you want them to or not, try and feed off of some of that crop. And so they're moving um, especially where you have um, that connected land where you've got the woodlands or CRP or prairie that meets that um, agricultural land. That's a that's a good spot to find deer and to find those antlers. And you may be making that positive connection with them too. You know, if that farmer in the future has not allowed hunting in the past, or, you know, if you're going and you're, you're communicating with them right now, say, hey, I, I would love to just go shed hunting prove that you're respectful to that land, uh, continue conversations with that farmer, and then show them, say, you know, I found this good size shed, or I found this shed in your, on your land this year, maybe offer that up as an opportunity to go hunt his land during deer season. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's a great way to really connect with the landover with all three of our states being very heavily uh, farmed and, and big in the agricultural production. It's a great way to get on private land when we have such limited public land. So my brain is just spinning with that because that is such a good point that I never really considered with shed hunting. And there's a lot you can do to earn that landowner's trust, including letting them know if they have like a fence down for cattle or anything like that, picking up trash that might have blown onto their property or anything out in the field that might damage, like you said, their tractor tires or um, their livestock. So there's a lot you can really do there, both to benefit the environment, benefit the farmer and make a great relationship. And Marissa, that might start off our competition because a better neighbor would allow us to go on his land. <laughs> I was thinking that the whole time. Julia's already got the scouting done. Points. This competition is rigged. Yeah, I'm not into this. Maybe we just need to set a weekend aside and like just report back on Monday and see how many we got. I like it. Well, Marissa, we certainly appreciate all the wonderful advice you've given us so far and you've taken the time to jump on with us today. I've got to ask, are there any additional tidbits that you're leaving or holding out for us? I know there's a competition at stake here. So <laughs> if there's anything you're holding back, um, do let us in on that information now. I'm scared to share now. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think one of the biggest things and, you know, just similar to, um, you know, other types of hunting is walk, just walk, get out there and walk. 
Um, take some binoculars. You'd be amazed sometimes what you can find just by scanning with binoculars. Just enjoy the experience. I think, you know, a lot of times we get so um, focused on what a successful hunt would be. And it's the same with shed hunting. And I'm guilty of it all the time that, you know, if I don't necessarily, you know, get something, was it a success? And absolutely. It's timeouts, you know, spent outside, it's exercising, it's breathe in that fresh air. We're going into spring with it. Look for different birds, look for different animals, um, you know, take a camera with you and take photos. There's so many different things to do when you're out there shed hunting. Um, so don't be afraid to, you know, explore different things that you might be interested in while you're walking. Marissa, are there any specific things you need to carry with you when you're shed hunting? I know we talked about checking about permission to go out, but in, as far as like safety items, food, water, do you need a backpack to carry sheds in or is there a special equipment for that? You can get pretty serious and get, you know, big backpacks and all sorts of things. You don't really need anything um, except for a good pair of shoes and to dress appropriately for the weather. Now, if you're getting into a place where you need a backpack to carry all of your sheds, call me so that I can come help you. <laughs> but you you can take a backpack, which is kind of nice. So you can carry water, you can carry snacks, camera, a bird book, binoculars, whatever you may want to take with you um, and just make a day for it. Great question. I definitely have one safety tip to throw in there and, it, and it's coming from my background of being the hunter ed administrator for our state. Um, it's definitely not a requirement, but I would always encourage when you're you're out there shed hunting, especially if you're out on, on public land where there could be other traffic. I know there's very few hunting seasons going on right now, but we do have some continuous ones open. And as you get closer to, to turkey hunting, which you can still find sheds as we get into that season as well, like um, Marissa alluded to when, when she found her first one on the on our turkey hunt. Um, you know, wear some high vis color. I mean, it's not required to wear blaze orange, but you know, put on that blaze orange. Here's a chance to try out your your hot pink, you know, your chartreuse, your lime green, anything that's going to bring a little bit more visibility to you. So just that way, if someone else is out there enjoying the woods in a different manner, out there hunting or or whatnot, there's visibility brought to you. And and we'll definitely, I'm sure, be doing something on mushroom hunting as well. We always want to encourage our mushroom hunters the same. Um, the the colors you want to avoid especially as we get closer to the that spring turkey season are the those colors of that that turkey so we're you know we're hunting male turkeys in the spring so avoid those reds those whites those blues you know the, the patriotic colors so you might want to keep that in mind as you're out there scouring the woods because you know our turkey hunters are concealed and they're concealed because turkeys have really good eyesight so and you know we're always encouraged those hunters they need to make sure of their target and and properly identify but you know just help them out a little bit by making yourself a little bit more visible while you're out there so we can all enjoy the woods together. So I'm interpreting that as high-vis jerseys per state for our competition. Are you guys game for that? Yes. Okay. Number I one I'll drop it <laughs> Deal, deal. I told you guys I was obnoxious. With our She Goes Outdoors logo on it. Marissa, will you tell us about a Facebook Live that you're going to be doing for, with us on our Becoming an Outdoor Woman Nebraska page? Well, I'm really excited to also share with everybody on February 6th, we will be doing a Facebook Live with Nebraska's Becoming an Outdoor Woman to kind of walk through how we shed hunt with the dogs, how to train your dog to shed hunt and show you a little bit about, you know, where you can, 
where you can start walking in those fields and looking yourself. So I'm excited to put a, a face with the, the name and, and share some more information with everybody. That is on Becoming an Outdoor Woman, Nebraska, our Facebook page. It'll be posted there. Rachel, I think you're having a program in Iowa too. I was just going to say, if if you catch Marissa and then you want to learn a little bit more, February 9th from 6 to 8, we'll also be doing a shed hunting webinar. Uh, you can find more information on it on the Iowa DNR's Facebook page, um, or feel free to reach out to Megan or I, and we'd be happy to point you in the right direction. We just want, like everyone on this call, just want everyone to get out and safely shed hunt and see what you can find this wonderful winter. And with that, I'm going to toss it over to Tana to wrap this puppy up. Well, Marissa, thanks again for joining us. We really learned a lot. Um, and it's just been wonderful to have you on. And like we mentioned, we can't wait to follow up with you on more conversations. You're just a wealth of knowledge and such a wonderful advocate for the outdoors and women in the outdoors. So appreciate you jumping on today. Thank you for having me. It's it's always so much fun to talk with you all and be a part of what you guys are working on. It's incredible. Well, everyone, we appreciate you jumping on with us today to listen to another episode of She Goes Outdoors. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and also follow us on social media. And we've also got another box coming up. The deadline to register for the outdoor cooking box is February 5th. So make sure you get registered for that box. It's going to have a lot of exciting contents in it for some good outdoor cooking. You can learn more about that box and about the She Goes Outdoors brand and program at sgooutdoors.com. Thanks, everybody. We sure appreciate you joining us, and we'll see you outdoors. <music>